0: This is Talk RL Podcast, all reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Nathan Lambert is a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley. Nathan, thanks so much for being here.
1: Hi, Robin. Thanks for having me.
0: What is the focus of your work?
1: So I kind of emerged into this model-based RL area from a potentially different path than a lot of people in the deep RL uh, space. And I came from kind of a minimum data framing, where I was assembling these robots by hand that take hours to make. And they break within just like a minute of collected data. So I wanted to know what is the fastest way to generate a controller with an unknown system. And we kind of arrived at model-based RL because it was showing to be very sample efficient in some simulated tasks. But then also when you have a model, there's a lot of interesting interpretation that you can do to try to understand what your system is doing and kind of learn from the experiments that you run. And RL is very interesting as a framework, so we've kind of been growing into studying how model-based RL works and then with some applications to novel robotics.
0: So I encountered your work at uh, NeurIPS twenty twenty just recently, um, specifically this next paper, uh, "Learning Accurate Long Term Dynamics for Model Based Reinforcement Learning." Lambert et al. twenty twenty. Can you tell us uh, about this paper? What's the What's the main idea here?
1: Yeah. So in this paper, we are kind of the we started trying to think about model predictive control, where what happens in a lot of model based RL algorithms now is they kind of. Unroll these dynamics predictions by compounding predictions through a neural network. And anyone that's tried to compound predictions through a neural network knows that you get some weird numerical behavior and essentially diverging uh, predictions. And we're trying to rethink how predictions in model-based RL could be done. And it's pretty hard. The standard paradigm I'll refer to a couple times is like this one-step model, where in a one-step model, You have a discrete Markov decision process, and you're modeling the change in the state. So it's like a a delta formulation where you pass in a state and an action at a time, and it predicts the change to give you the state at the next time. And that works, but you have this compounding problem. But in this work, we were trying to come up with a new time-dependent prediction mechanism. And we call this the trajectory-based model, which is really coming from the fact that it's trained on all of the sub trajectories within a rollout. So you take an episode, a trial and simulation or with a real robot, you get this like a couple hundred uh, time step long segment and then you have And what we did is we take each state in there and you label each segment into the future. So you have a lot of segments of that trajectory. And, and we explicitly added a time variable to the prediction. So instead of a state and an action, it takes in a state and a time step, and then also control parameters, which is kind of a, it's related to the action. But really the core of it is we wanted to be able to predict at a specific time to get away from the compounding predictions that one-step models use.
0: What about the policy does it i guess that the model that's learned is specific to that one policy is that right
1: Yes it, it it is in a practical way and this is something that a lot of my research has come to work on but maybe not necessarily intentionally is like the idea of that a dynamics model is going to be like focusing on a specific thing and you should control that so we'll talk about this more with some later papers but in this case the trajectory-based model, we pass in some closed form controller parameters. So we did our experiments with LQR, with PID, and on some robotic tasks. And we passed those tuned controller parameters into the network as an input to help with the long-term prediction accuracy. The thought behind that is an action sequence that you would use to kind of unroll one-step models. The action sequence are all taken and correlated from those control parameters. So it's kind of a compression of information, but then it comes at a cost where, say, we're currently trying to do research to figure out how to uh, embed some neural network policy into control parameters, because you no longer can take data from a different algorithm. Like, I can't take dynamics data from a robot running soft actor critic and try to incorporate it into my model-based approach. So it's kind of a trade-off. It's like, what the dynamics model does is it is specialized in something and that should be hopefully correlated with how you're going to use it with control.
0: So the control parameters are telling the model something about the policy that that you want to use?
1: Yeah, so explicitly like an example that we use in the paper is we do a a reacher task, which is a robotic arm in space, and we control the joint angles with a PID control, which is a classic, like, uh, it's a proportional integral derivative control that kind of gives these nice, smooth responses. And what we would do is we pass in the constants that define the PID control and then also a joint angle target. So one of the most important ones is actually the joint angle target for the PID control because that kind of, like, controls where in space the end effector would be, so... And then from there, it can predict kind of the long term dynamics of where the arm will end up.
0: Mm, so you train it over a large range of those um, controller parameters, and then and then it's able to to interpolate between. Is that is that the idea there?
1: Yeah. So we collect a whole bunch of different PID tunings and. Joint angle targets, and then hope in hopes that it kind of covers the whole space of the task. So, if you like, when running the task at a low level, generally the goal is resampled at a different 3D position in uh, every trial. So then the policy parameters and the in this case PID parameters we generalize to cover that space.
0: And and are these um, deterministic models that are being learned, or I guess the, the the concept could carry over to stochastic models as well.
1: Yeah. So. In the paper, we mostly characterize the deterministic models, but if you're digging deeper into model-based RL literature, there's kind of two axes that people have been working on. There's the idea of ensembling, and then there's the idea of using a different loss function to create a probabilistic model. Uh, Ensembling is designed to help with the epistemic uncertainty by kind of smoothing out your model capacity over the data set with cross-validation. And... Probabilistic models are designed to kind of capture the uncertainty that is inherent to the task at hand. So, if you rerun a robotic task multiple times, you're going to get multiple outcomes because most of these processes are somewhat stochastic. And generally, there's a paper from uh, Kirtland Chua and Sergey Levin's group that did this with, they have like their pets algorithm that characterized these trade-offs. And the same changes to models work for the trajectory-based model. So we didn't really have room to go into all the details in the paper. But one of the interesting ones is when you apply this probabilistic loss function to the trajectory-based model, you get a stable uncertainty estimate where the uncertainty is roughly proportional to kind of like the oscillations or the uncertainty in the task. If you run like a standard feedback controller, like PID or LQR, depending on the tuning, a very common behavior is kind of oscillations. And we found that the uncertainty in the trajectory-based model with the probabilistic loss function, the bounds kind of model where the oscillations could be rather than tracking the exact frequency of the oscillations. And that's pretty nice, because if you're trying to plan into the future with that, you can kind of say like, oh, the state will likely be somewhere in this region. And kind of that's, we don't talk about safety in the paper, but understanding where the distribution of potential states could be is very important if you know that your individual prediction is likely to have some error.
0: Yeah, I love the fact that you get just so many more samples from a trajectory um, using your method. It's It seems so elegant and and, and kind of beautiful. I, I right away, I was like, wow, that's, that's uh, something very appealing about this. So and that, so that's why I wanted to reach out to you. Um, you know, besides all your other interesting work. So, but um, help me understand. Um, model a traditional model. I think would also predict reward. Are you Are you trying to predict reward too, or is this mostly about the state transitions?
1: We mostly focused on the state transitions. So it's kind of a very practical point in model-based RL. So in building these frameworks, if you're like doing model predictive control, you kind of have to pass it a reward function and you pass it a reward function and I can compute the, compute the actual reward from the states. And the other way to do it is then have the model predict the rewards. And I personally haven't seen a big difference. And the original thrust of this paper was just purely on like how do we improve prediction accuracy so we didn't try predicting rewards but that is something and like in terms of when I say predict rewards something that people do is explicitly with the neural network you have a output that is the reward at each state so it's kind of trying to learn what the reward function would be and then in this paper we did do something related which is computing the reward from the predicted state trajectory which is a little bit different because you're using the reward function from the environment Mm -hmm. and generally what we found is that the trajectories that we were predicting were much more stable uh, stable in the sense that you don't get weird numerical errors from uh, predicting really far into the future or they just fit well to the tasks at hand where using the reward function from the environment we could predict the downstream rewards pretty well where the problem with one-step models is that as this compounding error comes about, the reward is very hard to predict and and ultimately, there's kind of this the crux of doing any RL problem is you're trying to optimize the task at hand and it's kind of gives you one more tool to understand the learning of the dynamics that you have if if you can correlate it with the actual reward of a task
0: that makes total sense. yeah, I love this paper and uh, I've definitely. Uh, experience that problem of the, I call it the tyranny of the one step. And so th- this is a really uh, really elegant way of handling that. Okay, so let's move on. You have a, a few other papers here we'd, we'd love to chat about. So you have um, Objective Mismatch in Model-Based Reinforcement Learning, Lambert et all 2020. And that was at a conference on, on learning for dynamics and control. Can, uh, can you tell us w- what's the idea here? Yeah, so this paper
1: is very related to the one that we have talked about. And it's kind of the backwards order from how I did the research, but we're kind of learning about both of them in synergy. So this paper was looking at the model-based RL framework and trying to understand how this modular framework, where we have a dynamics model training, and then, so generally separate, and, and then we do the control optimization, and how this handoff, and it's more of a handoff than an exchange of information. It's kind of one and then the other, and how doing this sequentially results in potentially suboptimal performance and what signals we may be able to see that can improve the model-based RL framework. And what we did, what we centered this paper on is kind of trying to understand what the optimization of the one-step model for prediction accuracy, what it is doing and what it is not doing in terms of understanding the environment and in terms of optimizing the task at hand.
0: So you show how model likelihood does not correspond closely with episode reward. And that seems to be the thrust of some of the most important charts. Can can you explain um, what exactly does that mean?
1: Yeah, so this is something that I was hinting at earlier in this conversation. And ultimately, I've come to phrase this as when you're learning a dynamics model from data, there's really no free lunch. So what you're doing is you have some distribution of data. And in RL, it's kind of a iteratively learned distribution. So as you learn a task, you're kind of building this data set out, it grows a little bit into your state space. And a dynamics model learns accuracy kind of uniformly with respect to the density of data that you have. But in reality, the distribution of your data does not match up exactly well with the distribution of the data for the task that you're trying to solve. So the task you were trying to solve could be like an expert distribution, but the data that you get is some on-policy data. Normally started with purely random state action pairs, and those are probably not very relevant to the task you're trying to solve. And when you're using one-step models, it's optimizing over that entire state space rather than the task at hand. So you can end up with an accurate model overall, that is not necessarily accurate at the task you want to do. So the readout for the machine learning engineer is going to say, "I have done supervised learning. I have done it well. My loss is very low. I think that this model will be useful for downstream control." But in reality, a globally accurate model, in terms of, is, is like is accurate on average, and there are sub areas such as for the task that might actually result in lower reward. So. That's, that's, that's the long story of it, but it's very it's very nuanced because then it comes to say, like, what do we do with our model? It's like, do we keep training for accuracy? And I would say yes, but we want to be able to focus our accuracy on the areas that we are interested in. Mm-hmm.
0: And I guess it's challenging because we don't always know in advance what the area is we're interested in. We don't know where the expert's going to want to go. Is that true? Is that the case?
1: Yeah, so there's a example in this paper where we take a... Robotic task, and we predefine an expert trajectory. And we show that when you predefine an expert trajectory and weight the dynamics model around that trajectory, so you prioritize samples near the expert, the learning rate is much higher, the data efficiency is higher, and the performance uh, of the downstream controller is better. So it's like, okay, we knew what we needed to learn. So if you focus there, it does better. But kind of when I have the time, I would like to return to this paper and kind of build out that algorithm and you have to figure out how to iteratively update your expert and iteratively figure out what your expert trajectory should be so that's kind of the open question in terms of applying this in in the real world and not in a simulated environment with a task you've already solved
0: so this paper had a whole section on adversarial attack on model performance uh that i thought was pretty interesting do you want to tell us uh more about that how that worked and and what what would that what that was for
1: Yeah, this is one of my favorite results from the paper, probably because it was also so easy to get done. And a lot of times in research, people know that you kind of work at your keyboard a long time to get any numerical result to work. This one was done in an afternoon. So it ultimately like kind of just set it up and it worked immediately, which is when you know that it's probably doing something right and you're not just forcing random seeds or anything. And what we did is we kind of wanted to fine tune a model so that the accuracy you get as a readout over the whole training data set remains high, but the task performance goes down. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying about no free lunch in dynamics models. So ultimately what we did is we took like a CMAES optimizer to change the weights and biases of the output layer of a feedforward dynamics model. This so is the one-step dynamics model, and then as we were tuning the Dynamics model parameters, we used it for a model predictive controller in the cartpole environment, and we were looking for a model that reported a high average accuracy but got a low reward. So by just iterating a few trials of CMAES, we were able to find a model that reported the same level of global accuracy over the on-policy dataset, but in, in reality, if you probe deeper, the uh model accuracy over like the area of interest, or what we have called the expert, was very low. And therefore, the reward for the cartpole drop- task dropped from full to just 50% performance very rapidly. So it's kind of saying like, there's we're not doing that much intelligent design with how to weight the dynamics models and what the one-step models are doing. And it's pretty easy to find a model that isn't useful for uh, solving the task, but might look useful if you were just training this on the data set at hand
0: so it's like a worst case type thing
1: yeah I, I kind of interpret this as like the space for bad models might be well more populated than the space for useful models sort of like searching in the sparse space but we don't have the right metrics built for it it is it, it, it's a very very deep paper and i have talked with some of my co-authors about this I and mean, we like need to keep digging into this subject and I don't know, on one hand it's exciting because I think model-based RL has a lot of opportunity for growth where there's these problems that are pretty numerically obvious and I think that there's the right people to solve them. But it's like, it it, it definitely warrants some more deep thinking.
0: Cool. Okay, then that'll give us lots more to talk about in the future. So uh, how about moving on to uh, your next paper here, low-level control of a quadrotor with deep model-based reinforcement learning. That was Lambert et al. 2019. So this is using a, a really small robot uh was it the crazy fly robot can you tell us about the uh the robots to start with
1: yeah so this is a good connection to my research vision that i portrayed in the intro so the crazy fly is i'm gonna guess either 27 grams or 32 grams it's uh wallet sized so pretty small very lightweight and we were we chose it one because a lot of researchers use it and two because it was the smallest one that we could find that's kind of ready to play, and it was related to this trying to use model-based RL to control a micro-robot, which is called the Ionicraft in my lab, which is the one that I hand assemble. It uses 2,000 volts to create a plasma region and literally uses silent ion thrust to fly. It's it's pretty magical. And we were trying to develop methods that we could use to control that in robots like it. And the crazy fly is what we settled on because it is very well supported. I would happily work with the crazy fly more. And we we're trying to see if, if we know nothing about it, can we learn to fly by just controlling the motor voltages? So we turned all the onboard controllers off and we were are like, how hard is it to learn a simple locomotion task?
0: Okay, so that and that was the uh, the goal of the paper. Can you tell us about the kind of the paper overall? What's was the thrust here?
1: Yeah, so this was this was my entrance into model based RL, and I think the paper is a good example of practically what you need to do to get one of these systems set up. And now I easily see some of the limitations of model based RL through the paper. But it was uh, just vanilla deterministic one-step models. I We didn't use ensembles online because ensembles take longer to compute in model predictive control. We set up the model predictive control um, on a GPU. And uh, with CUDA, it's just in you know, a for loop. And you kind of optimize it to remove everything except for the feed forward neural network passes in parallel. And you can run model-based model predictive control anywhere from 25 to 100 hertz. You could run it at two hundred hertz, but that's not really MPC because you're predicting like one step into the future. So if you look at the paper, it can give you some frequencies with different number of samples that you number number of action samples you're evaluating in different time horizons. But it, it kind of made me see where the point of computational hardware is, and then thankfully the computation was kind of the bottleneck. But thankfully things are continuing to improve there. So in a couple of years, the we'll get another. 2x or 4x improvement in computation, and I think that could actually translate to a lot more useful model-based control, as we can take more samples and more rapidly run our controller, which is a, a, a huge limitation in, in practical tasks.
0: And this was a uh, was an
1: offboard controller. CrazyFly has a pretty nice support, nicely supported infrastructure with a robot operating system ROS. And what happens is we, with some hacking, we increase the. F- Um, radio communication frequency from the robot to a base station. So the robot would send um, encoded state data to a base station, and the base station is where the GPU was. So the GPU would wait for the event, which is new state data. And upon new state data, it would start the MPC. And they were kind of communicating back and forth well faster than the actual control frequency to kind of uh, combat some practical difficulties with rf transmission i.e dropped packets so it was a kind of well well engineered is a strong word for research but we spent a lot of time on the engineering of the actual crazyfly hardware system in order to get it to be robust with low-level control when you're doing low-level control if you take one bad action things will likely crash if you're doing trajectory planning you tend to have a more robust low-level controller on so it you have a little bit more flexibility which is ultimately the low level control is what made the paper hard as we're running at 25 or 50 hertz where the internal controllers are normally running at 500 hertz. So if our MPC took a couple bad actions in a row, it would crash, which is rough because sometimes I had to just replace the propellers and replace motors and start over. But I think that is good lessons for where robotics research is, is that getting these results is actually really hard. So we need to think about some things, like how is the computer infrastructure set up? Can we integrate safer exploration? And all these things that I kind of know now after working in deep RL a bit more. But at the time, I was just so motivated to actually get something to learn in front of me, which is a pretty magical experience the first time you do it, is a robot kind of comes to life.
0: Cool, okay, so I was looking at a slide deck that you had. Um, and you noted on one of the slides that this is just a, a really challenging control problem at low frequencies. Like you mentioned, lower frequency than the, uh, than the frequency that the, I guess the bot is expecting less than 50 Hertz. And then you said not a direct competitor to PID. So can you tell us about that? Like, um. Could RL or model-based RL uh, eventually be a direct competitor to PID? Is it a matter of just speeding things up? Or can you say more about the line between um, PID and what, what what makes sense for PID and what makes sense for for something like uh, RL or model-based RL? This
1: is a very important point. So the paper is an important demonstration of what can be done, but the thing like a lot of commercial off-the-shelf robots use this thing called PID because it's so easy to work with, and for a system that's not going to have a lot of changing dynamics and it's kind of one and done you make the robot it's it's not going to change payloads it's not going to crash much a pid is great because you tune you can tune the parameters and then it's going to work really well it's low computation it's well studied but i think model based learning and any sort of rl comes to be very well motivated when some of these things come into the real world when they become interactive when they change environments so there's kind of a an idea that I think is it, it's kind of like model-based RL could be operating at one step up in the hierarchy. So PID's would take over for the low-level control because they're honestly way more impressive than what I demonstrated what we demonstrated was like a was a proof of concept, and that hopefully we can try this on other robots as well. But if model based RL is then a task planner, it could tune the PID parameters on the fly. Like if you pick up a new object and your um, inertial properties change, or if one of the motors is weakened, model based RL kind of has the capability to retrain from recent data and then adapt, which PID mechanisms are not set up to handle well, and model-free RL kind of fits in between there, where model-free RL policies are not very adaptable, but a model-free RL policy potentially could replace a PID policy. So a basic processor, like I've baselined my laptop many of times, and that's years old at this point, it, it could run a soft actor critic policy at over a kilohertz. So that's pretty good. That's much better than a model predictive controller. And kind of using model free rl for skill primitives is something that i think would be interesting and then I, I still think the idea of having some model that reasons about the world at a higher level is, is very important so then I, I like the idea of model based rl kind of or model based control as a higher level of the hierarchy and then classical controllers and model free rl operating below it
0: i'm, I'm definitely no expert in control theory although i did take a course in it uh... When I with my computer engineering degree, and it's it's uh, it's seen mostly about achieving set points, like setting the begin stabilizing on a new target value, um, and whereas RL is uh, I guess optimizing this reward, which can be anything we want, so freeform, and I guess I've seen some people in robotics use the RL to set the set point for the PID to try to. Uh, achieve that set point so is there is there multiple ways that these things can be combined and maybe that's is, is the um is this is still an open question of exactly how they can be combined like or or is it seem pretty clear to you the right way to to fit them together
1: yeah i would say that's like the big open question something that kind of grinds my gears sometimes is uh, how little the two communities can learn from each other and i I've been lucky to work with some people that kind of try to split the middle between control theory and learning based methods because they kind of solve the same problems in different ways and they all have their pros and cons. But I mean, it's to the point where like the fields use different letters for things. It's like states versus (laughs) states and observations and actions and inputs. It's like, but there there's a lot of overlap and that intersection is something that I'm very interested in. Like i haven't had much time to explore it. Now there there's one paper where we applied the same model-based RL framework in in simulation to kind of compare it to like closed-form derived uh controllers for nonlinear control so we like derived something called a lead bracket and then kind of set up this contrived model-based RL problem to see if the model-based RL learns exactly what the closed-form nonlinear controller does. So and, and it, it kind of it it kind of does and it's like Okay, it's it, it's like showing you can do a learning-based method to solve something that would take an expert to derive by hand. But there really are these methods that can hand off between one and another, and we need more people to kind of work at the intersection and understand what has been solved by control theory and what we don't need to resolve with data.
0: So there's there's I've seen some talks by uh, Professor Ben Recht from. Uh, UC Berkeley as well on on this exact topic and how how you know which 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 one's better or 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 things things that RL is just trying to reinvent without understanding what control theory is done and and I I think a lot of control theory seems to be about, be about like stability and guarantees and things like that which in RL is kind of like all bets are off right like how do we prove that something doesn't oscillate or how do we prove anything at all
1: yeah and I I do think that there will be continued progress here i have seen a bit more caution from the rl community recently i mean if you go back and watch the deep rl workshop from last year at neurops with like the panel the panel is all kind of like "Ooh, like rls people think rl is fading a bit and and stuff like that and it's mostly just it's mostly represented by model free rl practitioners and the intersection with control is limited but I, i i think that's something that we'll see to continue to grow in the coming years, it's it's there's a new conference like learning for decision and control or learning for dynamics and, and control is L4DC, which kind of occupies the crowd of like Ben Recht I think was on the on the board and then like Claire Tomlin and representatives from similar uh, similar groups but other schools that I'm less familiar with and I, I I think that's one to watch when it comes to actual practical uses of learning and how that
0: interfaces with control. Yeah, and my last comment before we move on to your, your next fascinating paper here, I, I guess w- when I first came to RL, I, I um, right away I was I found model-free RL kind of almost distasteful in a way. Like I, you use it, it's useful, I get it, but um, it seems like we're just throwing away data in a certain sense because as soon as we want to adjust the task, we're kind of starting from scratch again. So it seems like in the uh, it's hard for me to imagine in the far future that um. Or or going forward that model based won't have like a much bigger share of the pie, basically, just for that fundamental reason.
1: Yeah, I, I like to push back a little bit. I work in model-based and I love to figure out the best ways to motivate it. And I think for the reason you brought up, which is like building models and using some of the data more, I think that's something that industry will like. Like industry likes guarantees, industry likes to know what's happening. So even if you're using if you're using RL at all, it's it's hard to see outside the box, so to say. It's hard to know exactly what's happening, but I I think some adoption in model-based RL by industry might just be due to the case that they can see a bit more that's going on. Like, they don't want to lose money on things. But Model Free RL has a super elegant motivation, which is it's end-to-end, and it's just learning purely from data, and it does work very well. So as long as Model Free RL is solving some things that Model Based RL doesn't solve, I, I don't have any qualms with recommending people to try it on things (laughs) and the kind of the burdens on the model model model-based people to kind of catch up and surpass if we're going to make all the uh, these claims about models being so elegant and and useful which i think there is some momentum for but it it is a two-sided discussion
0: so let's move on to on the importance of hyperparameter optimization for model-based reinforcement learning that's zhang et al 2021 can you give us the uh, high level on on this paper
1: yeah this is a paper that i Join after I think its first round of review, and it's a it's a very dense one. But the high level, I mean, the title says it perfectly. It's studying how if you use auto parameter tune auto ML, so automatic parameter tuning within the model based RL framework. It's studying the wide variety of effects that you can see, and these effects best are captured by task performance, but. Really, you see other interesting trade offs at the model side, which is like what is what is actually being modeled by the dynamics model and it it kind of connects to these questions of what should we be modeling in model based neural but it it's very interesting just numerical study of showing how young the field is in some ways in terms of most practitioners like the best case study i get is people talk to me about model based rl and they're like oh you're using deep networks like how much how much tuning do people do there like what what are the tricks to getting your deep neural network to predict states well is like eh, everyone uses two hidden layers of about 200 neurons and then doesn't really touch it and we just train it from there and don't really do anything which is like kind of a joke when you read this paper and it goes to the point where you tune the model and the control optimizers, if you fine tune them, and if you do something called dynamic hyperparameter tuning, you can literally break the simulators that you're working in. So the framework was set up for success. And then maybe us uh, grad students as grad student parameter tuners didn't exploit quite enough, or we weren't good enough to do so by hand. But there is a lot of opportunity for studying like how to incorporate parameter tuning into some of the algorithms that have already been published.
0: Okay, so you've been talking about dynamic tuning, and uh, I gather from the paper that's that that's talking about the fact that the same hyperparameters not might not be ideal to use throughout the whole training. Is is that right? Is that what you mean by dynamic tuning?
1: Yeah. So I learned that this existed well later than I would have wanted to, and how I learned this is from working on a reimplementation of um, the PETs code, which is that same. Uh, Kirtland Chua et al. Mm-hmm. paper that I referenced from about 2018. And if you look at it, the different environments have different dynamics model parameters. And the interesting one is the half cheetah environment does something called incremental model training. So it gets its first random batch of data and it trains that like a normal network. And then uh, after the first trial, it kind of does something that's meta learning like where it takes gradient steps from the previous models parameters which is different because a lot of times people just retrain models from scratch. And ultimately, they did that because that's what worked. And that is a discrete change in hyperparameters, which which is still not a lot. But dynamic hyperparameter optimization is the idea that at each trial, you can kind of fine-tune your model parameters. And you would want to do that because you have maybe broader data. You might have more data, so supervised learning is easier to do. And as you have more data, it might be a little bit easier to run a model predictive controller. And then you might be able to like increase the model horizon as your model gets better or run more samples in your model predictive controller if you are at a harder state and need to find a more precise action to choose. And kind of changing these things online is really something that's not exploited, mostly because it, it, it does take a lot of computation to, to try to integrate a whole nother uh, research like it's a whole another re- set of research code which is automatic parameter tuning into a model-based RL library while running it online that that's a lot of infrastructure that most academic labs don't really have
0: so it, it almost reminds me of like things like RL squared and like would we want to use RL to tune the hyperparameters of the model-based RL in our loop is that is that kind of what we're getting at or um or how how might we do that
1: yeah, so I kind of see, like, AutoML is kind of like RL. It just uses, tends to use simpler methods than what is deployed. Well, simpler is not necessarily the best word. It uses different methods than deep RL. So it uses the elite- A classic example is, like, Bayesian optimization. I've, I've set up parameter tuning with Bayesian optimization, which is a another iterative algorithm that works pretty well. And in the paper, they also talk about population-based methods, which, which, Really, all go back to the rich history of RL, and you could call it like RL on RL. I, I just think that the, in, like the magnitude of results shown in this paper without using something like Deep RL, I, I don't think we need to do Deep RL on R and Deep RL, but it really is, and then it just when you're running a RL loop around another RL loop, the specification of your problem is is really hard to reason about. It's like because RL is pretty vague in its definition it's just a it's a world and an agent and then all the variables within there are fair game for it to, to optimize it's not the most specified
0: okay but with this dynamic tuning are we are we optimizing a one-step problem like is it, is it kind of like a bandit setting or are we trying to say you know this sequence of three sets of hyperparameters is getting us to the where we want to go that, and and we're looking at a multi-step framing does that make sense Open
1: disclaimer, I am not the expert on... Auto ML. This group that we are working with was developing some new auto ML algorithm. So I definitely defer to the paper if you want to be 100% certain in my answers, but my understanding is kind of it It, it has a sense of hysteresis or momentum, and it kind of understands what, what worked at the previous time step and incorporates some of that information in and then kind of builds into the future. So it does have a, a short memory, but the optimization is run at every time step
0: if there's a uh, a new set of parameters to use cool okay and so on a, high, on a high level like do you think the cost of um you know all this complexity with more hyperparameters in model-based rl is just an unavoidable thing um that we have to cost we have to pay to get the benefit of the the better sam- sample complexity with model-based rl or or maybe is that that complexity and that all the extra hyperparameters is that maybe just an artifact of of where things stand today. And, and and one day we might find a simpler way that doesn't um, require all that cost and uh, of complexity and, and large set of hyperparameters. What do you, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I, th- I still think we're kind of on the upper trend of system complexity with RL and machine learning models, where we're also going to start seeing more hi- hierarchical solutions that are both model free and model based. And as the complexity increases, the tools for handling the complexity are going to develop. So I think AutoML is going to be kind of slotted in automatically to most research groups in any data-driven area. I think that's going to happen within, I don't know, five, one to 10 years, depending on how cutting edge the group is and the resources, just because it, it, it's, I'm not going to say it's a solved problem, but it, there is uh, kind of free gains to be had by running more compute. And we all know compute is getting more accessible, but over time, the variables of importance will kind of be understood. And then some of the other variables, I think, will be more static. And then I, model-based RL, by having more subsystems, is likely going to have more parameters. But I don't think that that is going to be a huge limiting factor forever. I think it'll kind of stabilize. I
0: mean, I guess if we look at the brain as the prototype of a truly intelligent system then. There's there's got to be umpteen hyperparameters in there that, well, we never had to tune, but they were tuned over you know millions of years of evolution, so um, so we don't have to think about them now, and so maybe we're kind of going through the same process, uh, but having to do it uh, intentionally, which could be kind of painful the first time around.
1: Yeah, I I I like that analogy. Like I'm not going to. I hopefully am not going to use the genetics of getting uh, chased by a lion, but there is definitely. Already learned and tuned parameters in my body to respond to those type <laughs> of situations. That's for sure.
0: Okay, so, um, so Nathan, how do you see your path uh, going forward? Do you have like a certain goal, a very specific goal, or or do you have a certain way of deciding what you focus on next, uh, kind of within the, the the area that you stated?
1: Yeah, I definitely have a lot more going on it broadly in the robotics space right now than specifically a model-based RL, and some of that is due to who I'm working with and kind of the problems at hand and it goes back to the conversation on control theory, intersection with learning based methods. And I, I think to understand autonomy at a big picture, uh, understanding the full picture of methods is very important. So I'm enjoying learning some more, uh, more like decentralized control, multi-agent systems. But the kind of like next work on my what would say, thesis path or my personal path is we're trying to reduce the computation of model predictive control and model-based RL. And we're doing so by learning learning more on imitation learning, looking at some offline RL literature to try to make it so we don't have to run MPC online. If you can do all of that information offline, so you can compute your predicted trajectories offline from logged data, and then kind of do imitation learning of the model predictive controller into a feedforward policy, that would make it a lot easier to run model-based RL on a real robot, Mm. because you won't need a GPU online. So that's kind of the next thing that I'm focused on, but I tend to take a pretty broad approach to things and kind of wander around a bit and that might change as my I'm planning to finish my PhD probably around the uh, end of this year, and then it might move somewhere else where there's more support for pushing on RL type of things, and I would happily broaden the scope of that work.
0: Cool, yeah that that um the dichotomy between like running MPC and how expensive that is, and versus distilling something like. I don't know if this is a fair question, but just, it makes me wonder, like, are we doing MPC in our minds? Are we actually doing NPC when we're playing sports and stuff? Or are we just kind of doing muscle memory? I don't know enough to say, but I, that that's an interesting question to me.
1: I've had a lot of conversations with this that work in areas about that relate to biology per se and leveraging the neuroscience analogy strongly is not something that I like to do, but take the statement weekly is they do think that they're, mice kind of replay models in their brains so there's some preliminary evidence that uh, if you have a mice in a in a maze trying to get to the output they like replay their visual Mm -hmm. uh, neurons that correspond to traveling through the maze and i i don't know this this is something that i'm trying to figure out kind of my own time i like blog about robotics and rl a lot it's just like i don't know there's also the interesting Process of writing and distilling the ideas, which is something that I think academia is good for. But I don't. Know, a lot of RL research kind of prioritizes just getting papers out the door. So some of that idea distillation, in terms of what we're actually doing, might get missed.
0: <laughs> so for the audience, we will we will link to Nathan's blog and the uh, on the episode show notes on talkrl.com. dot com. Um, I I want to go um, actually go back to that little robot you had, the Ionocraft. And we didn't we didn't didn't say too much about it. You said how small it was and how it had a very very interesting way that you you produced the the thrust. But um, so how small is ionocraft? And and do you have uh, some uh, affinity for the, for these tiny robots?
1: I it's probably a love hate relationship. I mean, it's <laughs> been a project that's going on through my whole PhD, and it's kind of grounded where how I think of problems, and so it's this kind of nickel-sized robot in area it's probably essentially weighs zero to the human hand it weighs in milligrams like if you put a off-the-shelf imu on it that imu raises the mass by like 50 percent and that's just a little silicon dye it's like a few grains of sand type of thing and so this is very tiny it's made in a silicon nanofab process which is kind of what my advisor specializes in it's some of the stuff that I did in undergrad so this is kind of my unusual path into RL into math it's kind of like I worked on a lot of electrical engineering hardware I learned a lot about models I learned a lot about like Fourier and uh, kind of the old school of genetic algorithms and kind of all that area the some of the older math and I I like that I'm trained in a bit different way because I think it produces some cool results in RL when you kind of have people that are from different backgrounds and that's why I kind of want to work with neuroscientists and stuff like that but back to small robots, it's it's kind of the most interesting application space at hand it's like we we might be able to hand tune PID parameters for the robot but the limiting factor and the uncertainty of the environment is that we have to hook up uh, like five to eight tethers to the robot to supply power and to actually Mm -hmm. control the thrusters and there's a lot of analytical models that you can do in figuring out like what is the wire force it's a certain spring constant and also the wire mass affects the flight and for every flight the wires would be different so it's quickly becoming like a either a rapid adaptation of model learning or you need to you're on the clock and you're trying to hand tune a pid parameter set within like a minute or two because it probably won't work on a different robot so it's It's kind of been interesting, and it's kind of like a carrot in front of me that's always leading me on through the PhD and kind of discovering these interesting things about model-based RL along the way, which I definitely have the benefit of having someone that's allowed me to kind of chase the carrot wherever it takes me and not just require me to solve any one task at hand, which has resulted in a whole bunch of different investigations in model-based learning.
0: Yeah, I love these tiny bots. Like, do do you do you see yourself going for even smaller robots, or is that was was that more a phase?
1: If you can solve the self assembly problem, so the scale that they're at now is grad student assembly, which is really hard. And if you go up a factor of two or four, the grad student assembly becomes really easy. But if you go down any further, you kind of need to get some automatic assembly mechanism, which is pretty mm-hmm. tricky. But I think like the idea of novel robots and small robots makes is really good for the imagination and kind of understanding that we are still coming up with new robots and there are an infinite amount of tasks to solve with respect to those. I mean, it, it took me a bit to get here, but ultimately if you look at my website my calls talk, the second slide is just like, look at all these cool robots. There's a lot of Stanford. There's my group They're They're really all over. And I think that's what the a future where you can kind of, come up with an idea for how something can move and then if something can move it probably can solve some task and being able to just learn a controller for any real set of actuators and uh, structures would be really exciting There's just infinite robots
0: so besides your own work and and what we've talked about so far are there other things going on in, in rl that that you find uh, pretty interesting these days
1: i i think offline rl is going to be big i haven't studied the specifics there's people that I respect a lot that are putting a lot of chips on the table in that area, but also just because it removes some of the safety concerns. If you can give RL systems just the the right data set, and then it can give you an output, you don't have the interaction with the, with the real world that can be tricky. So like I'm somewhat worried about RL systems for internet processes. So like if you just start unrolling a general RL system for what's displayed on my phone, It's really hard to model what the effects on me are going to be and harder to model what the effects on Mm -hmm. me in the context of my peers is. And offline RL kind of slows some of those feedback loops down. And I I don't think we've talked about feedback a lot in this talk, but uh, RL is inherently a feedback structure and control theory showed that feedback is incredibly powerful. And Mm -hmm. like trying to understand what RL's notion of feedback is how that relates to feedback control, which is some classical methods. And then kind of like how feedback compounds intelligence and kind of creates these emergent properties, I think is something that is really powerful.
0: Cool. And then, I mean, uh, for my, for my little experience with control systems, it seemed like it was also saying feedback can be super dangerous because it can set up these, these, uh, oscillations that can make things super unstable.
1: Yeah, and there's also there's also funny funny things like if you have two stable stable modes that you switch between, and both are under feedback. If you switch between two stable modes, you can get an unstable mode. So there's there's a lot of like little nuggets in control theory that might be unexpected.
0: <laughs> that sounds yeah. That's the kind of stuff I think that RL can learn from control for sure.
1: There, there's definitely some people that are starting to explore it. I mean, in looking at this model predictive control work, there's work from Francesco Borelli and Vijay Kumar who are trying to do similar distillations and applying learning methods to optimal model predictive control. And they're doing things like with optimal model predictive control, you can uh, learn a second controller that kind of acts as a safety critic and, and things like this and still try to set up some of the optimality constraints. So I am falling behind in terms of understanding all the math in the optimal control, but Hopefully it can catch up. And th- those those things excite me a lot. With keeping any notion of optimality, it seems impossible, but they seem to be making progress on it.
0: Nathan Lambert, this has been really fascinating uh, and, and a good time. Thanks thanks so much for sharing your time and your insight with the uh, Talk our audience and, and with me today. Really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I'm really happy to be here, Robin.
0: Notes and links for this episode are at talkrl.com. If you like this show, I need your support. You can help in a few ways. One, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Subscriptions make a big difference. Two, follow us on Twitter at TalkRL Podcast. We love retweets. Three, give us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think we deserve five stars, let us know on Twitter what we could do better.